Hello, everyone. It is Tuesday, May 5th, 2020, and this is Liberty Church Audio. I'm Pastor John. This podcast is the audio from last Sunday's drive-in service. You'll hear some wind and some cars passing by, but overall, I think the audio is pretty clear for the day. Dave Ford read the scripture and Tom Black led us in prayer. And the text is from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as they did not know the scripture yet, that he must rise from the, again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Lord God, our Creator, our Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, we come to you this morning on this first day of the week to give you the praise and the honor and the glory and the adoration that you so richly deserve. We thank you for your protection during this crisis. We thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for the camaraderie that we have with each other through Jesus Christ. We thank you for this particular time of gathering. We think of that first, first day of the week that was mentioned in our scripture passage this morning. That first day of the week has become for us the Lord's day because it was the first day of the week that Jesus shattered all expectations, even those of the disciples. We think of Mary and Peter and John and the other disciples that came to that tomb early on that first day of the week, puzzled, confused, perhaps a little bit afraid, and it slowly began to dawn on them what had actually happened. That awesome demonstration of power that you displayed when you raised our Lord Savior Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Help us, Father, as we gather on this first day of the week to remember that that's why we're here, because of what you did in Christ and what you did for us in Christ. We pray, Father, that we will partake of that life more and more as we go through this life, that we may reflect the reality of him who rose from the dead that first day of the week. And we thank you for the promise that he gave us that because he is alive, we will also live. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you familiar with the phrase, the penny dropped? Are you aware of the origin of that phrase? The penny dropped means that someone has finally understood or realized something. If you are a teacher and you're going through your coursework and the students are looking at you confused, and then all of a sudden the penny drops, they finally understand what you are saying. There is an origin story to this that I found at wordhistories.net, and it is a British phrase, and it comes to us from the year 1911 because Teddy Paley was causing trouble. Teddy Paley was a schoolboy, and he was charged with stealing two packets of chocolate from an automatic machine. And this comes to us from the Leeds Mercury newspaper of the time. The, but the machine was placed by the door, the article says, of Mr. Thomas Coates' shop in Station Road, Otley. Mr. Coates said that he had suffered during the past 12 months through boys inserting paper pennies into the slots of the machine and could steal, and by that could steal the chocolate. And the article says that from the shop, he could hear from the shop when a penny dropped. And as there was no sound when these paper coins were put in, he went to the door and there was Teddy Paley stealing chocolate and Teddy was turned over to a probation officer. But that apparently is the first known story of the, where we hear the phrase, the penny dropped. So he's working, he hears that sound and he realizes people are buying something from him. So it's the penny dropped or we use the phrase, it clicked or the light bulb goes on, or the other shoe dropped. And these are powerful moments of realization. I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Monk, where Monk is an obsessive compulsive guy and he is a well-known detective. You go through these murder mystery stories where he's gathering clues and all these clues are just floating around out there until one last clue comes into focus and then he says, here's what happened. He realizes, here's what happened. And so he points to the murderer and says, he's the guy. There's the guy. And that's that moment in almost every episode when the penny drops and the realization dawns on him of who committed the crime. We have a moment of realization in our text this morning that is so profound that we need to read the text one more time. Look with me at John chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, 
The other disciple here is the writer of the book of John. He, this is how he inserts himself into the story. The other disciple whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter. So John says, I outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. There it is. He saw and believed. The penny dropped. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. This is the most, one of the most profound moments of realization in human history. N.T. Wright, talking about the resurrection, says, Christianity began as a resurrection movement. It was the central driving force in forming the whole movement. In particular, we can see woven into the earliest Christian theology we possess, that of Paul, of course, the belief that the resurrection had in principle occurred and that the followers of Jesus had to reorder their lives, their narratives, their symbols, and their praxis accordingly. Practice means their practice and their activities and how they accomplish things. So he says the church believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the beginning. They believed it, they told it, they symbolized it, they oriented their practices and living around it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the core message of their preaching in the book of Acts as well. It's the whole point. And when you realize that Jesus rose from the dead, everything changes. You realize that he is the son of God. You realize that what he said was true. You realize that he is our authority. He is our creator. He confirms and affirms everything that was written in scripture. Romans 1 says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace. It is through the resurrection of God's son that we have received grace. So my message to you this morning in a sentence is this. The reality of the resurrection is powerful. Look with me where we see the reality of the resurrection. It's in the details, right? Look, the stone is rolled away. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. And other gospels tell us there was a little light. So it's just that early morning darkness, even as the sun was rising. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That's a detail. And we know that's important because in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that when they were rolling the stone into place, she was sitting there watching. She and, and another Mary sat opposite the tomb. Sometimes people might say, and they've offered this as an explanation for the resurrection, that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. 
No, Mary Magdalene knew exactly where it was. They saw him put the body in. The next Sunday, she saw the body out, and she knew exactly where that was. It's in those details. The stone was rolled away. Also, the tomb was empty. She ran to the disciples, and she said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. This is one of the facts of history, that that tomb on that first day of the week was empty. And that must be accounted for. She didn't know why it was empty. She assumed that the Romans had taken the body of Jesus. The Romans and the Pharisees were assuming that maybe the disciples would take the body of Jesus. But everybody has to account for the fact that the tomb was empty. And she said, we do not know where they have laid him. Not only is the stone rolled away and the tomb is empty, just notice how clearly the details in John's memory are. Look at verses 3. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, they ran together in verse 4. John stops. He doesn't go into the tomb. And Peter blows by and goes right into the tomb. I love these little details. These are the details of memory. These are the details that hold up in a court of law. And there there were the linen clothes there. And then John says the napkin over his face was set aside. The handkerchief had been around his head. It was not lying with the linen clothes, but it had been folded together in a place by itself. That's a detail that comes from a clear memory of having been there. I've heard sermons where people try to explain why that napkin was there and all the theological meaning behind the folded napkin. I do think it's funny that after Jesus rose from the dead, he took that napkin that was over his face and folded it and put it there where it belonged. Why is that? He was just a napkin folder, apparently. And so he put that detail there, and John saw it. The point is, this is coming from John's clear memory. The tomb, the the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. We have these details of clear memory. And then that moment where the meaning clicked into place. He saw and he believed. That's why he wrote the book. He said many other things did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But he said, I've written these miracles down in the Gospel of John that you might believe. That's why John said in John 1.14, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. This is an eyewitness account. When Jesus turned water into wine, he said that was the first miracle that Jesus ever did and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed. Jesus told the woman at the well everything she had ever done and she believed and she was happy about that, by the way. The nobleman's son is raised from the dead just by the word of Christ. And the nobleman realizes as he's traveling home after having talked with Jesus, his servants come and say, your son is okay. Your son is healed, rather, from the fever. And he said, well, what time did that happen? Oh, it was about the same hour that Jesus had told him to go on home. And he said, your son lives. And the nobleman himself believed and his whole house. The man born blind said, who is the son of God that I might believe on him? And Jesus said, I've healed you. I'm the one. And the blind man who now saw said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And at the raising of Lazarus, 
many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. The whole thing is about perceiving the truth and accepting it. And through that, life comes to us. That is the reality of the resurrection, the truthfulness of it. That's one of the most important things we can not only know, but believe and rely on. And it was a resurrection. This was a resurrection. This means his body came out of the tomb. It wasn't some vague immortality. It was that his human body came back to life and he walked out of the tomb. And the Bible says in verse 9 here, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now that's a little strange. Because in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise from the dead. He had told them, but they didn't understand. He had told them flat out, but it was a fog in their minds. Have you ever read the Bible that way? You've read scripture, you try to understand it, and it's just all foggy. And you're like, I don't know how this connects with that. How does all this work together? And then maybe you read a book or you meditate on it or your pastor talks to you or you're just reading it yourself, and then all of a sudden, the penny drops. That's what happened for John. Now he understood what Jesus meant completely when he said, I'm gonna rise from the dead. He said, ah, this is what he was talking about. The reality of the resurrection is powerful. There's a power here. This is one of the most powerful miracles ever. It's up there with creation. It's up there with the incarnation of the Son of God. It is the resurrection from the dead. I've been, I've started a book called The Power of Bad. Doesn't that sound interesting? The Power of Bad. It is talking in the prologue about a fundamental imbalance in how we view the world that says bad is stronger than good. It's according to the author, the negativity bias, the negativity dominance, the negativity effect. And this is what they say. In the power of bad, they say we human beings have a tendency, a universal tendency for negative events and emotions to affect us more strongly than positive ones. That's a, it's a psychology book. And we have a tendency for negative events to hit us harder than positive ones. They say we're devastated by a word of criticism, yet we're unmoved by a shower of praise. We can notice a hostile face in the crowd and miss all the friendly smiles. The cognitive behavioral therapist might call that discounting the positive. But they say the impact of bad lasts longer than the impact of good events. A single bad event can produce lifelong trauma. And notice what they said. There is no psychological term for the opposite of trauma because no good event has such a lasting impact. So in this latest book on psychology that I'm reading, they're saying there's no word opposite of trauma in the psychological literature. And there was an interesting experiment that a man named Paul Rosen was doing, and maybe you'd be interested in, in being a part of this experiment. He showed 
how little it took to contaminate something good. When a sterilized dead cockroach was dunked into a glass of apple juice and then quickly removed, most people refused to take a sip. So it's a sterilized cockroach dipped into your drink. You know it's sterilized. Are you still going to drink it? What would you do? Would you drink that? Most adults became unwilling to drink any apple juice at all. And not even when it was freshly poured from a new carton into a clean glass. The slightest touch with a, disgust, the slightest touch with a disgusting bug can make any food suddenly seem inedible. Have you ever poured out your cereal and found like worms in it or something? Okay, that, that has a lasting impact. There's an old Russian saying, they say, that a spoonful of tar can spoil a barrel of honey, but a spoonful of honey does nothing for a barrel of tar. So that's the negativity effect. And I was listening to this book on Audible, and I'm listening as I'm working, and that phrase, there's no opposite word for trauma in the psychological literature. But I'm here to tell you there's an opposite word for trauma in the theological literature. There's an opposite word for trauma in the Bible, and that's the word resurrection. I don't know what kind of traumas you have all experienced. I know some. I do not know them all. And the psychologist may say there's no opposite word for trauma, but the Bible says there is. It's called the resurrection. It is the destruction of death. It is the destruction of wounding. It is the opposite of trauma. J.R.R. Tolkien coined a term, you catastrophe. There's the word catastrophe, which means something went wrong all of a sudden. But he put the prefix EU in front of it. It's the same prefix in the word gospel, euangelion. And he coined the word you catastrophe. It's the word consolation the joy of the happy ending. He's talking about stories. And more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is ne as necessary to the joy of deliverance. But you catastrophe denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat. And in so far is Evangelium, giving a feeling, a glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It's a sudden, joyous turn. And that's what the disciples felt on the morning of the resurrection. And that is what, by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, we should feel when the penny drops, we should feel that sudden joyous turn and all of our traumas can be swallowed up in the hope of the resurrection. We have the word blessing. We have the word consolation. We have the Tolkien word, you catastrophe, but the Bible calls it anastasis, resurrection. The resurrection was the greatest you catastrophe possible in the greatest story, Tolkien says. So this is power. The reality is in the details of history. Resurrection means your body 
the body of Christ walked out of the tomb. And it's powerful because it promises us the opposite of trauma. Jesus went through trauma, didn't he? And now it, he's experiencing not just a return to the baseline, he was raised in glory, which swallows up all traumas. This is the power that destroys kingdoms. This is the power that Daniel saw in the dream that he interpreted to Nebuchadnezzar. All the kingdoms of the world are stacked up in a statue and the stone cut without hands comes down and strikes the feet of that statue and it collapses. This is the ending of one kingdom and the beginning of another. This power destroys death. Hebrews says that by his death, he breaks the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what resurrection does. This power destroys our enemy. John says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And I want to leave you with this. This is the power that destroys personal failure. Let me go back to John and Peter. John, John was a thoughtful man, wasn't he? He's the philosopher of the four gospels. He's the one that writes down the deep theology. The other gospels have it, but John has his own style there. We don't know of any failings really of John other than he left the Lord when he was arrested just like they all did. But Peter's failure goes much deeper. Peter stood by the fire and he denied that he knew Jesus at all. He brought down curses. He committed a sin that seemed so unforgivable that nobody would want to even be around him anymore. And yet Mary comes and, they, and she says, the tomb is empty. John and Peter run. Peter runs right in and looks around. And then he goes home. John had the penny drop. I'm not sure that Peter did exactly in the same way. Because a few days later, he says, I'm going to go fishing. I go fishing. I'm going back to the life I had before. I... I, I sense that he's saying, I'm not worthy to be called a disciple. And then on the shore of the lake, Jesus takes him aside. And he has a fire there. And Peter denied the Lord by a fire. And the Lord restored Peter beside a fire. The resurrected Lord restored his disciple from an unforgivable, traumatic sin. Isn't that the power of resurrection? Doesn't that make it personal? It is because of the death, burial, and resurrection that our sins, the trauma of our sins, can be healed. And it is also the trauma of other people's sins against us can be healed. This is the destructive power of the resurrection. It destroys evil and rises in life. Has the penny dropped? Do you understand who it is we're worshiping? We're worshiping this morning the risen Lord. Do you see it? Do you believe it? If you believe in the resurrected Lord, you have life indeed, eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality of the resurrection and its power in our lives. We ask that 
this would go from theology to spiritual experience that we might see and believe through the testimony of your apostles. In Jesus' name, amen.